1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Professor Michael Roper to tell us all about his book titled Afterlives of War, A Descendant's History, published by Manchester University Press just now in 2023. This book uh, documents the lives and historical pursuits of the generations of people who grew up in Australia, Britain and Germany, after World War I. And it's really interesting because it looks at this idea of these are people who may not have directly witnessed World War I, but still were massively impacted by it in all sorts of really interesting ways. Um, so there's a whole lot of oral history that went into this, um, personal observations. I mean, there's really a lot going on in this book. So Michael, thank you so much for joining us to tell us all about it.
1: Well, it's, it's a pleasure to join you, Miranda.
0: Before we dive into your book, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit to our audience and explaining why you decided to write this?
1: Yeah. um, My previous book uh, was called The Secret Battle, and that was about um, young men uh, in the trenches in the First World War, and it was looking at their relationships with their mothers, uh, because the British Army was predominantly a young army. And I was very interested in how they maintained connections to home and I think I was kind of trying to retrieve a hidden history of relationships with mothers as correspondents, as the makers and senders of parcels to men at the front. And I guess I thought at the end of that book, which was published quite a long time ago, 20, 2009, this book, um, Afterlives, has taken quite a long time to finish. But I thought I was interested in what happened to them after the war. And I was particularly interested in what sorts of families would these young men have gone on to create after the war was over. And I kind of set out um, really to think, well, let's let's begin with where the war ended. Let's begin after those dates, 1418, and let's look at the war, where the war was after it was over. And I think that I was particularly interested in the idea of the family. Uh, It's been called a kind of shock absorber. Uh, when it comes to war, that families do a lot of un, unpaid, unrecognized work containing the damage of war. And I was interested in following that idea through and starting methodologically when the war, as it were, in terms of chronology was over, but thinking about how the memory of war, how the damage of war is held, contained within families.
0: So I think, given that, obviously, really interesting starting point, that idea of the shock absorber is just, that says so much, doesn't it? Um, I'd love for you to kind of, before we get into what those effects actually look like, one of the really interesting aspects of the book comes right at the beginning, almost in the table of contents, really, when the structure of the book is uh, revealed and discussed a little bit, can you tell us about how you structured the book and what kind of, how you made that decision?
1: Oh, look, um, that structure came very late in the day. Um, The book, for years, was a mess. It was three very different projects, and I couldn't see the relationship between them. There was the first project, which I did, which was interviewing um, descendants. In other words, uh, men and women who'd grown up with a war in the family, either through their mother or their father. Um, And these were people at the time of interview who were in their 80s and 90s. Most of them are now dead, actually, um, and so I set out to do these interviews, and these were British uh, descendants. At the same time, um, and this will sound really odd, but you know, the centenary came like a runaway truck, and I didn't see it coming. <laughs> How could I not? Looking back, I'd begun these interviews in 2011, and the centenary really got going, uh, you know, in, in late 2013, 2014. Um, and so what then happened was I had to try and adjust the project to account for the centenary and all the activities going on around the centenary. And I was involved with many other people uh, in, uh, in funded projects, funded by the British government, by David Cameron uh, in the middle of austerity. Uh, money went towards uh, commemorative sort of activities, which historians were helping with. So I got involved in those and at a centre, a First World War centre at Hertfordshire, Uh, run by Sarah Lloyd, Um, and through that got involved in kind of um, uh, heritage organisations, in particular an organisation called Age Exchange, which was uh, doing its own interviews with descendants. Um, So there was a second project, which was all about the centenary and tracking the centenary. And then the third thing that was going on at the same time as those other two projects was that Within my own family, um, I'd had a long interest in my grandfather, who was a First World War veteran of Gallipoli, which was, uh, you know, was an an Australian uh, story. Um, And at the time of the centenary, all sorts of records were becoming available through the Australian government to do with um, the health and repatriation of Australian soldiers. Those became available, and they allowed me to have a whole new investigation of my own grandfather. Um, and I was doing that with my my father, who was then in his late 80s. Uh, he was doing family history on his father. I was doing family history on my grandfather, his father, uh, and also on my maternal uh, grandfather, uh, as well as my paternal grandfather. So um, there was a lot of family history going on. Now, there were three very separate projects. And in the end, I just thought, oh no, these are three books and my life's too short. I'm too slow. I can't do three books. How can I hold all this together? And I hit upon the structure, first of all, thinking methodologically, what does it mean, as you said in your introduction, to be thinking about people who didn't go through a war, but where that war is part of their own life in some way. So I thought, okay, there's me as a researcher thinking about the methodology of how you deal with people who've had experiences that were not their own, that have shaped who they are. But secondly, then, there's me as the oral historian of British descendants. Thirdly, there's me as the the observer doing a kind of ethnography of the centenary. And fourthly, there's me as a descendant reflecting on who does family history of war, why do they do it, and what have I found going back to look at my own paternal and maternal grandparents. So, four parts of the book, four different identities. Me as the historian, me as the researcher, me as the descendant, me as the observer.
0: Well, I have to say, reading it, it didn't seem like you came up with that towards the end of the process. It seemed very coherent, um, especially as you explain it here and, of course, in the book. Um, One of the aspects that I think helped it be so clear is that on this point of sort of methodology and structure, you address some of the things that can make pursuing this sort of project really challenging. And it's it's based on something you've just mentioned, right, that you were interviewing people who were quite elderly, um, and many of them have since passed. And that's obviously a challenge with oral interviews as a method in some ways exacerbated in this case, because it's really quite a long time since these things happened to them. So can you tell us a bit about how you approached oral interviews and especially the idea of kind of what people are actually telling you versus sensing the whole experience you know how much are you focusing on the words versus the emotion versus all these other pieces of the interview process
1: look you put it really well miranda i'm not sure i could i could have put it as well as you do actually in terms of the complexity of it um yes they were very elderly and and in fact i do think that if you like, oral history has a life course to it, and that very elderly people are often in a position where their memories do become um, more not as exact, uh, where more stuff kind of fills in the gaps. But these were also people for whom there had been gaps from the start, because, as I said, these were people who did not go through the war that affected them. So, from very a very young age, they had had to imagine what they did not go through. As children, they had played First World War games, but it wasn't their war. They had maybe even played with the stuff that parents had from that war, like parts of their uniforms. Um, uh, You know, one man mentioned um, a a a revolver which should have been not kept in his possession, but had been. That you know, these were as it were, physical uh, objects from the war, but it was a war before their time. So they're having to fill in gaps, and they're doing it all the way through their lives. You know, the, they're doing it um, as children, when they look at wounds on their, on their father's bodies. They have to imagine what might have caused that wound. They're doing it in old age when they uh, have a leisure and they construct histories. But there's also something about the life cycle of oral history and the fact that with very elderly people, Quite often, there may be an element of um, putting things together that were from different times or uh, or, or sometimes of of just fabulation. Um, so um, some of my interviews were ones in which people were telling me things which are historically very significant. For example, I did an interview with a woman who told me all sorts of very fascinating things um, um, things about what it was like to have a father who had multiple disabilities. And she talked about how when he went to hospital, the cost of his hospitalisation had to be paid for out of his pension. Now, I thought, oh, that's a terrible thing. How can that be? But actually, when I went back and looked at the research, she was absolutely right. This was, uh, and So she had memories around where the family had no money, and they were memories of times where the father was in hospital And the cost of his hospitalisation had to be paid for from his pension. So she was giving me lots of historically very accurate information. At the same time, she was telling me a story about her own war, which was the Second World War. And the more she said about the war, that Second World War experience, the more extraordinary it seemed. She had worked for Special Operations Executive. She'd worked in aircraft factories. She'd worked um, as a nurse and the more she talked about the different identities she had in the Second World War, the more I thought, mm, this can't be. And I couldn't verify any of what she said in terms of background um, checks and information. So this is a more extreme example of a very common tendency in these sorts of interviews that people move between positions. They fill in the gaps from stuff that they understand from the culture. Um, people sometimes got the first and the Second World Wars mixed up. They sometimes remembered stuff they'd read from the Second World War and imputed it back to their father's own wars. So, you know, it's a very complex situation in which which memory, uh, imagination break into the gaps, um, and also in which sometimes, you know, ageing memory issues also affect how people tell you and what they tell you. But, you know, some people were incredibly sharp about the historical details. Others, my mother, for example, who had uh, uh, dementia at the time I talked to her, had the bare bones of the stories, but just couldn't remember anything like the detail as she could have done five years earlier. And I, I regret with my mother that I didn't talk to her earlier on when actually there was more memory there. She just had the, the general details and she couldn't be specific. And again, she was one of those people who would fill in with general details, you know, just from, from the culture, from things she thought that she should say.
0: Thank you for taking us through that. I think it's often um, something that, historians who use oral history are very aware of, but perhaps people doing other kinds of research are kind of like, oral history, that's a thing. I know what that is. Um, And actually, it's much more complicated. And I have
1: an argument there, which is that it's wrong to criticise oral history as a memory source to say that it can't contribute uh, historical value in terms of things we know about the past, but it is also always bound up with imagination and fantasy. And it's wrong to think that those things are binary opposites. They go together. You can't separate them.
0: Yeah. I imagine that these um, aspects of oral histories and the kind of ways these conversations played out was probably quite similar um, talking to people with experience of World War One's effects in Britain, Australia, and Germany. So I'm wondering if you can maybe start us off talking about the similarities that you found in talking to people and doing this research. Um, between these countries in terms of the impact of World War One, before then moving perhaps to the differences that these different national histories created?
1: That's a really interesting question. Um, in terms of the similarities, I guess I have to start off with a confession, which is that I don't speak or read German. And so my understanding of what was going on in Germany came from three or four fieldwork trips that I did um, to Rosenheim uh, in Bavaria in 2016, where Age Exchange brought together British and German descendants. And we had a big team of people. We had translators uh, with us the whole way that we translating oral history interviews. So I did some interviewing. Um, I watched pretty much all the interviews um, over about a sort of four-day period. And then we had other visits as well of another week or so, I suppose, in total. Um, so my understanding comes from observation of this um, extraordinary uh, you know, um, commemorative event called Meeting in No Man's Land, uh, about which a film has been made, actually, and you can get hold of that. So in terms of the similarities, I think that um, what brought all these people together was their common interest in finding out about what their descendants had been doing in the First World War. And the fact that the centenary, if you like, just gave lots of people, if if you like, permission. Uh, it created a culture of descendants where they could recognise that they had value as descendants. They had things to say to the general public as descendants. They had status as descendants because they were all the last living link to that war. They understood their value as narrators where there was a war in the family knowing that going forward, the knowledge of the war in the family would be lost. Now, in theoretical terms, um, we could talk about that as the distinction between uh, what's called community memory, which is memory within the family, memory that lasts over an 80-year span, roughly, and cultural memory, which is the memory that historians hold and that is held in public institutions. And this was a moment of transfer. Now, you can see this process of transfer happening across... uh, the three countries I was talking about, you can see it happening in terms of the interest of museums in gathering stories of descendants. The Imperial War Museum had a big project of digitizing family stories where you could contribute to a portal. Um, Similar things were happening uh, across Europe with the Europeana project. So these were cultural institutions which were gathering family memory and doing something with it. So the descendants all from the three countries understand that they're part of both a historical moment of a centenary, and a life cycle moment of their own imminent passing, and they are the last living link to the First World War. They all understand that, and that creates kind of cultural activity, right? So that is what they share. And when you, when you saw British and German descendants talking to each other, and Age Exchange got them to interview each other, you can see them all understanding how similar the experiences are. You know, that they're their, their fathers, their grandfathers are all sending postcards back from the front in which they describe the food, they describe how cold it is, they describe how hot it is, uh, the the basic human fundamentals of which trench warfare exposes you to, they're all writing pretty much about the same thing. So um, they're sharing these similarities in terms of their forebears, in terms of the kinds of experiences they've had. Um, I remember there was one wonderful exchange between two women uh, in Rosenheim in 2016 where it turns out that both the fathers were quite short. So <laughs> they have a big, you know, oh, look, you know, here they are, well, they're both short. Um, so there's a sort of universality that comes through these these, these sharing of memories. Um, um, and, you know, lots of the preoccupations like the sending of parcels and so on, That that's universal. But... You know, starting to break into the differences. Of course, Australia is much further away from the war theatres of war, and the food gets stale there. The parcels, um, you know, often get broken. Uh, it takes too long for the for the stuff to arrive. So, you know, you start to see, see some of the differences. Now, being more specific about those differences, clearly there are hugely different national cultures of remembrance around the First World War in those three countries. Germany being the most different from the other two. For obvious reasons, that the Second World War and the extremism of the mid-century, the First World War in Germany in, in German public memory gets wrapped up into that later conflict, and it, it, you know, if anything, it's seen as part of what's known as a longer thirty-year war. Um, it becomes the sort of predecessor, the lead up to the conflict of the mid-century. So its memory is buried in the rubble of the Second World War. And that's something which the descendants constantly are getting to grips with. They, the we, we were dealing with rather a select population. They tended to be pro-European. They were interested in a European project looking at the First World War. But we had a terrific sense of the war reappearing um, pretty much for the first time as a culturally significant historical event in 2016. People discovering things in their lofts, people um, having uh, letters transcribed, people having radio programs where they read out the diaries of their forebears. You know, a sort of gathering historical culture minded by the second and the third generations in which that war was being sought out and understood on its own terms more. Now, that is very different from the situation in Australia and in the UK and I think Australia stands really at the other extreme because the historical culture around the First World War. You know, when I was growing up, we all had school assemblies um, on Anzac Day, where we were all uh, inured to you know the mythology around the war, around the idea of the baptism um, of fire, the idea that Australia's white nationhood uh, was proclaimed at Gallipoli. In 1915, uh, where Australia came of age as a settler nation. Now, that was the myth that we grew up with, and that is still very dominant in Australia. And uh, it's a, a, a moment of national founding, and it's, if, if in, in my own view, it's over commemorated. Uh, it has you know, extraordinary importance. Britain is somewhere between the two. Um, it, it's. It has a live commemorative culture, but it's not a moment of national founding. It's a moment of of mourning, and that sort of narrative of the pity of war is still, I think, very dominant, and it was dominant through the centenary. So it's a moment of looking back on a mad time where terrible things were done, but that's difficult to explain rationally. It's not really so much a moment of national pride so much as... National remembrance and solemnity. Um, so there are three different cultures. And uh, having said that, though, I think the British culture became more Australianised during the centenary, um, in the sense that you could see as the centenary went on, commemorative events, key national, key battles, descendants were, for example, given space at the, these events, they were given seats, they were given um, priority. Um the way in which Australia, you know, families have always had precedence in that way in Australia, but they got more prominent in the British uh, culture through the centenary. Uh, and in Germany, you had the sense that it was only just starting. And it was very exciting because people were be bringing in, you know, tobacco boxes that had been stored away and not looked at for decades and opening them up and saying, well, look what I found last week. You know, <laughs> whereas the British descendants were bringing in things that they'd shown many times before and talked about before as part of a much longer kind of culture of historical interest among descendants.
0: Oh, very interesting similarities and differences. You've described in that answer some of the reasons that descendants um, wanted to come forward and obviously some of the kind of institutional aspects that gave them a platform to speak from, especially around the centenary. Is there anything further uh, you'd like to tell us about why you think descendants were so motivated to tell these stories?
1: Look um there's no doubt that culture plays a really central role um the centenary and the lead up to the centenary you, you had books like the last tommy that sort of moment of passing the moment of passing of the of the of the direct participants in the wake of that you know I think the last tommy it's only 2012 13 14 that the last descendants in each of the three countries die so on the back of that you know, that moment of generational passing, that is what creates, that articulates with the centenary to create really quite potent movements. And, you know, they're movements that one can see in film. Um, You know, two of the big blockbusters, uh, uh, uh um, the, the British blockbusters, um, They Shall Not Grow Old, and um, what's the other one? 20, oh, I can't remember his name. But, it's, <laughs> but they're, both, they're both grandsons, actually, directing the films. You know, there's a sort of, Personal interest in the family story being brought into the broader culture. This is happening all over the place. So you can't under- underestimate the power of the culture to shape the way in which individuals and families react.
0: Mm. Absolutely, especially with that cultural context. Mm. Um, thinking kind of, I suppose, somewhat more specifically about kind of who the descendants are and what their experiences would have been like, I was really struck in the book how you talked especially about the impact of the war um, at home afterwards, especially on daughters, that there really seemed to be some gender norms playing out here um, in the immediate impact and in kind of who is coming forward later on, who is the keeper of family history. So could you tell us a bit about sort of what role gender norms played in who was telling the stories, which stories got told, um, when you went and talked to people?
1: Yeah. Daughters, you can start with the brute facts, which is is that daughters uh, tend to live longer than sons. That's just a you know just a fact, isn't it? That um, age expectancy is slightly higher for women than for men. So, it, you know, even starting off with my call for participants in 2011, there were more women answering than men for that brute sort of demographic reason. Um, but going backwards, <laughs> let me go backwards from old age and the people who were actually signing up to talk to me. Um, when we talk about the family as a shock absorber, gender is very important, because by and large, the shocks are experienced by the men as combatants, also, however, as um, widows, but also in much more hidden ways, as wives dealing with damaged men, um, but as it were, not really having the history of their own service, Recognized because it happened after the war and they never signed up. <laughs> there was no direct relationship with the state. It was all done in a hidden way. And most particularly in the families of disabled soldiers. And because of the kind of war that the First World War was, there was lots of disability because, uh, you know, heavy explosives, shells create fragment damage which means that men's bodies were often peppered uh, with shells, which could be in the head, in the torso, in the arms or legs. There was damage being carried and long-term effects of shelling, mental as well as physical, which had to be dealt with by people and to a point by the state, but lots of lots of hidden labor, right? So it's, first of all, mothers having to hold families together with fathers that often can't function physically that well, that can't earn that much money. Um, So mothers are in a double burden in an extreme way, having to do physical care for damaged men, but often also having to do paid work. And this goes down the generations because it's not just the mothers, it's also the children, the third generation. And it's not so much... The sons, it's the daughters that get drawn into care. They get drawn into the care of siblings as second mothers in situations where there's disability. They get drawn into care across their lives. And I'll give you one example, uh, a very interesting interview I did with a woman whose father was middle class. He um, He had lost a... Uh, a leg uh, during the war, uh, but sorry, no, I beg your pardon. No, he had been blinded during the war and was trained by St Dunstan's, which was the blind charity, to uh, work as a as a physiotherapist because St Dunstan's recognised that physiotherapy and touch and feel was something which a blind man could do. Now he practiced from his home, and his daughter grew up helping uh, answer the door, ushering clients in so that he could do his physiotherapy, she then decides that she would like to train as a physiotherapist as well. So father and daughter, both working as physiotherapists. But when the father finally reached the age where he couldn't work anymore, he then needed care. The mother had died and that daughter, unmarried, took over the work of care. Her two brothers, I think at least two brothers, both of them, uh, were in the church and were, were based uh, you know, at, in, at, in distant places in the UK. She'd never married. She stayed at home. She looked after the father, and that went on until the, the mid-late 1970s when the father died. Now, at that point, she had her first long relationship after the father's death because she was free to live her own life. Now, that's just one example of a life devoted to care in which the story would never have been told. The story would have been told of the heroic father who managed to have a career as a physiotherapist after the war. But the hidden care by the mother, first of all, and then the daughter, was just not part of the kind of public history of the war.
0: Mm. Absolutely fascinating. Um, I was thinking, in fact, of that example when I asked you the question that one case really is so evocative of this wider idea of kind of whose history gets told and and which pieces really get told, which is similar, in fact, in the next thing I'd like to ask you about, um, which is, again, this idea of the soldiers coming home as heroes, as fighters, as soldiers, and their role as fathers is less thought about. Their role in the domestic sphere is less thought about. And I was fascinated by what you learned about domesticity and fatherhood when you did these interviews and research. I was wondering if you could tell us about that.
1: Yeah, look, um, historians have charted lots of changes in fatherhood between the between the wars, and um, uh, um, they've talked about, Laura King in particular, has talked about ways in which fathers became more involved, and there was a sort of prescriptive literature out there about what was called the more involved father. The father would play with his children, the father that would do some domestic work washing up and Uh, fathers who were more interested in gardening. And it's a moment when, of course, uh, suburbs become, um, you know, they expand. There's uh, a lot of suburban development between the wars. It's cheap credit. Um, Life becomes more comfortable indoors, if you like. And uh, for many people, but not all, of course, because it's a moment also of great hardship in the Great Depression and people, you know, actually losing housing and being on the streets. But it's a twin story um, in which fathers are, Often very central, both as people who earn or can't earn, and as part of this kind of um, expansion of domesticity between the wars. So that's a general social history. Well, how does the war fit into that? How do returned fathers fit into that story? And I guess I just wanted to kind of um, look at the ways in which the war might be part of that history of fatherhood. And one of the things I was quite struck by was. Um, well, there are two things. Let me start by talking about uh, leisure. Um, We know that the interwar period is one in which, you know, people are having more leisure because of paid holidays um, and there, you know, there's quite a kind of an outdoor movement around um, youth hostels and about hiking and cycling. And, you know, the the, the fathers that were described to me by the children were often uh, very involved in these sorts of activities with their children. So it's something that draws the children in. These are common pursuits. I was also interested, though, in the way in which leisure for fathers could be recuperative, how it could help in recovery, how it could be a way of putting the war behind, how it could be a way of doing something harmless, how it could be a way of enjoying a child's company, how a child's company could be a way of diverting oneself from the past, how being a father and thinking forward to the ch- future of your child could be a way of not thinking about your own past. So these are all ways in which fatherhood could be a form of recuperation, not in a kind of trauma way, but in a in a low-key kind of way, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was very struck by the numbers of fathers that had, for example, uh, been involved in building dolls houses for their daughters, um, building games putting games together one father who was very interested in photography and had passed his interest in photography on to his daughter and these were all happy memories and she showed me she she would before the interview that i did with her she had a pin-up board in which she put up photographs that she had done with her first camera given to her by her father for i think something like her 11th birthday and she had Uh, a scrap album which was also given to her on that birthday and there were photographs of the family at the seaside there were photographs of them in having picnics there were photographs of them doing roly-poly's in the back garden of their middle-class family quite well off quite a good garden um these were all about the way that photography captured their leisure the way in which leisure pleasure um good things happening were part of the family culture Now, this was a man in this particular family who'd gone through a pretty awful war. He'd had an invitation to start a maths degree at Cambridge. He'd got funding, but he never went back to do the degree because he just wasn't in the right frame of mind. Um, And there was a lot of disappointment in him being very bright and not doing the thing that he had his heart set on before the war. But he found all these alternative ways of being an involved father and of cultivating hobbies for himself and for his children so this was an extreme example because, he, because this was a well-off family. But in many cases, you could see the ways in which involvement in activities with children uh, were ways of securing a kind of different future for yourself, you know, um, of thinking of something else, of thinking of positive things, doing positive things. They were physical, physically active things that were quite therapeutic, if you like.
0: Oh, fascinating. I'd love to stay on the topic of sort of leisure and play um, and bring it together with something you mentioned earlier, which I definitely sort of assumed would be an issue doing when you did these oral interviews. And honestly, in some cases, even found myself accidentally conflating World War One and Two as I was reading it. Um, obviously, the children who didn't experience the war themselves, I mean, obviously, by the time you're interviewing them, they did experience World War II. That can create some memory problems and conflation there. But I was fascinated to read in the book that there was also an impact, given that they were quite young when World War II happened, of remembering or imagining World War One while World War II was happening <laughs> um, and the kind of, you know, oh, there's planes flying around and so we're going to imagine different planes. And this came up in a few instances, but I was wondering if you could particularly talk about it through the lens of play?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um... Um, yeah, the, 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 there were board games from the first world war, which were in common currency. Uh, there were all the things about first world war air aces. There were all of the, you know, the, um, uh, toys and there were, you know, there was lots of first world war culture that was part of these children's upbringing. And the story that you, you're hinting at there, which is, um, the Sade family actually, actually is the one who had the father as the photographer, um, the woman the described this extraordinary experience of having uh, taking cover in uh, a dugout in the back garden um, uh, because uh, there was a bombing raid uh, going overhead, uh, and so they were taking cover. And what they would do is, in the shelter, um, they would play a First World War board game, um, whose name escapes me, but it was basically a naval strategy game. They would play that game whilst the bomb, whilst the bombers were <laughs> were flying overhead and they were taking protection. So there were ways in which the first of the the first of the Second World Wars were going on concurrently, you know, uh, in the sky uh, and, and, and in the back garden, in the dugout, in the shelter. Um, so um, uh, you know, um, um, uh, and I think that the it's not just that. It's the way in which um, children. I mean, they have their own Second World War culture. I mean, um, Gabriel Mashenka has written in very interesting ways about the way that children play with shell fragments uh, from bombs, for example. You know, they they collect them, they they build up all these collections. They have their own separate culture, but that they're also coming to it with with uh, with the legacies of the first. So, um, one one man talked about playing in disused a disused area where they used to hose down uh, look after the horses um during the first world war um and they would play first world war trench games uh in this area as kids um so you know they're inheriting that first world war culture and imagination pretty much in the way that I did for example growing up in the wake of the second world war when my airfix models were Lancaster bombers they were Spitfires they were you know Fokker wolves they were Dornier bombers they were you know, I knew all about that aerial war culture, uh, but I came afterwards because it was the war culture of my parental generation. Same goes for the First World War descendants. It's the war culture they grew up with. They then enter the second with that war, c- war culture. So now the other thing that happens is that, you know, when the, when the Second World War breaks out in 1939, bizarrely, the First World War reappears to the children because they watch their parents and they watch their parents' reactions and they see reactions that those parents have had before. They see fathers who are being taken back to what it was like to be in the trenches. They see mothers who are have anxieties about what that's going to mean for kin, which are repeated anxieties from the first. So it all begins to replay itself. And um, the numbers of memories I've had uh, that people gave of the mo- with the time when the family learned of the outbreak of the Second World War, where the children describe seeing parents going back to the first in their heads. So there's a way in which that war is being revisited by the parents, and they also watch their parents' reactions during bombing raids, where the children both often have more and less knowledge. So they have less knowledge in the sense that they often feel secure that their fathers have seen this before and know what to do. They take their father's advice about where to take shelter. The fathers often have quite strong views about how that's best done. Um, uh, at the same time, um, one guy told a, a story about, for example, how um, during the uh, the the um, uh, the bus bombs in the uh, Second World War, you know, towards the end of the war, the fathers not knowing what the sound was because he'd been working away from London, coming back to London to visit his family but not being aware of how to react and when to go under the table for protection. So, you know, these were stories about where the the kids often, and kids were very good observers, they were extremely good plane spotters, they sometimes knew more than their parents about Second World War technology and what to do about it. So it's a strange combination of the First World War reappearing and skills and expertise from the First World War having value, but also the Second World War being a different war in which different skills were needed in which the children sometimes know more than the parents, and they certainly do among the older people that I interviewed because they themselves went on, on to serve, or they were part of, you know, youth organizations that were serving. And they learn a lot. They have status and kudos that the parents don't. It's the kind of it became the dad's army joke, you know, about the old incompetence. But, you know, it's it is part of the culture. It's part of their coming to adulthood that it's their war, not their parents' war.
0: Mm -hmm. no that's absolutely fascinating thank you for taking us through that um my next question is about a different part of the book that is perhaps well i don't think there are any board games or fun involved um but is a really interesting aspect because it seems like unlike what we were just talking about that was discussed this piece seems to be much more hidden and yet hugely impactful um so specifically looking at the period between the two world wars, perhaps especially in Australia, your book has a quite substantial section that looks at the stomach. Mm. Why was this a, quote, contested site, especially in Australia, especially in the interwar
1: period? Right. Well, I talked earlier on about the Anzac legend, the white settler legend, the birth of a nation. Now, what I wanted to communicate in the book is that there is an underside to that story of the uh, Anzac mythology which is about shit. Um, Australia's baptism of fire was Gallipoli and Gallipoli ended in a withdrawal of the troops in December 1915 and the reason they were withdrawn was because the army was fatally weakened by dysentery. Now the mythology of the uh, Anzac is of a, a an informal uh, egalitarian, rough around the edges, uh, insouciant, not respectful of of authority, uh, informal, but a bloody good soldier and a good mate. That's the mythology of Anzac, and what what became apparent to me, and it started off. You know in a really strange way it started off with my own grandfather because looking back at the records uh when the repatriation records were released in 2016 i realized that he had a certified war wound that none of us ever knew about now his certified war wound was he'd had dysentery on three occasions in the first world war at gallipoli uh twice at gallipoli and then once in the middle east and on the back of that he had a lifelong problem of indigestion And as kids, we all knew about his indigestion because he had packets of quickies in his pocket, which were sort of, you know, remedies. He had liquids that he used to take after dinner to try and settle his stomach. And, you know, he was always burping. Um, It was a sort of household joke, my grandfather's indigestion. But it turns out that it was a war wound. It was a certified war wound. The repatriation office decided they would give him an operation in 1950, a cholecystectomy because of his uh, dysentery and the effects that it had on his stomach. And from that, I thought, oh, how interesting, you know, that there's that, that just, uh, you know, the, the dysentery's office clearly been an issue for these soldiers. And I went back and I looked at the records and I discovered all sorts of cases where, you know, dysentery counted as a war wound. And I tried then to link that up to the story of Gallipoli and what had happened at Gallipoli. So the more I read, the more the story of dysentery just turned out to be horrific. And what I did was I went back to oral history collections that had been done in the 1970s in Australia by Patsy Adam Smith and by the Imperial War Museum. And by the 1970s, 80s, veterans were more able to talk about these things. And they would talk at length about the horrors of dysentery. They would talk about men dying of dysentery. They'd talk about men um, falling off the planks that they used to shit into the shit. Uh, they would talk about men who were too weak to stand. They would talk about men that were reduced to crawling. And basically, that's what happened to the uh, to, to, to the Allied armies at Gallipoli. They just became so enfeebled and weak, they were not a sustainable fighting force. Now, the contrast is then between the insouciant, uh, tough, tall, lanky, strong Australian soldier of the myth, and what actually happened to men at Gallipoli, which was that they were enfeebled. They were a weak fighting force. They were fighting force. They were unmanned, and they were uncivilized. They were made uncivilized. They were they were white soldiers reduced to the most primitive kind of situation. So it was, if you like, a shot to the race as much as anything else. And that underbelly, that story of the stomach, is just not part of a national national mythology. And I think it should be because we have to understand the myth as a kind of counter-narrative to the unmanning and weakening of the Australian and New Zealand forces and others. But it's not a story that's been told. And I think the facts speak for themselves. And, in, and the official medical historian of Australia had a lot to say about this and had a lot to say about its cause in the withdrawal in December 1915. Um, it was mismanaged. Uh, and when I think back to my grandfather you know, he had a lot of hatred towards British officers. Now, if one looks at the way in which dysentery was managed, it was a failure of care. There were all sorts of measures that should have been taken to help protect the men that were not. And so they were failed by their army. And when one looks at the narrative of anger, I think it has a link to the situation that they all went through. And when they talk about mateship, what happened was things got so bad that men just stayed on the peninsula and tried to look after each other because they didn't want to be evacuated. Because they didn't want to let their mates down so you know the mateship comes from the shit it comes from a very difficult situation they were put through where no one was helping them they they could only help each other
0: thank you for taking us through that i think it was interesting to read about both the history you excavated and also kind of how it contrasted with this myth and yeah. then how you were like wait a second but i remember that with my grandfather oh hang on
1: yeah
0: um and really goes to this broader question about Uh, what we talked about at the beginning, your multiple roles, really, and sort of how one navigates that, right? Because realizing something about your grandfather and then going, wait a second, we have to sort of rethink what the story we've been telling in our own family is. That's not the easiest thing to do. So what do you think is important to understand when we kind of poke at these things, when we ask questions about who chronicles a war in a family? what sorts of stories were allowed to poke at or which things do we sort of let everything lie? Um, How we think about this impacts kind of the family that's heard these stories and family relationships. How do we think about those sorts of questions?
1: Look, um, I could say that I did only do it to a satisfactory degree because as you were talking now, I was just thinking about my mother and I was thinking yet again, I've not Into the picture, it's quite difficult when you are a a descendant to climb out of your own enculturation, you know. And I grew up fixated on my grandfather. Now there were quite personal reasons for that, which have to do with, um, you know, my own family, which I won't go into, but the book does. But I suffered, if you like, from a very typical gender blindness, which is that my mother's side of the First World War was never of interest to me. It was I was fixated on my grandfather and. I was fixated on my grandfather, partly because he was very damaged by the war, and that was apparent to me as a young child. And so he was very unpredictable, had a very volatile temper. He could suddenly lose it, and he was deeply scary. Yet my father was someone who never, ever, ever lost his temper. I can't remember my parents ever disagreeing. However, they did separate. (laughs) So, you know, there were all sorts of family dynamics coming from the paternal grandfather that seemed to help explain my family situation of an overreaction from a volatile grandfather to a a father that was extremely managed uh, about emotion. Um, but my mother's story is is trying to explain to you how difficult it is to be a historian of your own family and to be a historian that does justice to the history because my grandmother, her father was part of a family of of pacifists. And I was never interested in my maternal grandfather because he wasn't a war hero. And my mother had terrible difficulty talking about her father because he wasn't a war hero and when she had dementia and I interviewed her, she just said to me, there's no war story in my family because my father my father wasn't in the war. For her, there was nothing to say because there was no link to the national narrative, right? Her story was one about a father who had been um, uh, had been uh, ridiculed, humiliated for his pacifism. Uh, in which there was a two generation story of pacifism. His own father also spat at, had food thrown at him uh, for being a pacifist during very bitter conscription um, conflicts in Australia. So I think one of the difficulties of being a descendant yourself is that you really find it difficult to see things in the round and you fall victim to the dominant historical narratives in a way that's much harder to find your way out of. And. Look, it was really only in the last year of the book where I suddenly thought, my God, my mother's war story is the one that needs to be told, you know, more than my father's. And yet here I am, I've repeated the problems of the past in focusing on the warrior, focusing on the soldier's story, not focusing on all the other stories, which we tried so hard to open up during the centenary. So my answer is, you know, it's difficult to move between those different identities and different levels of understanding what you inherit, what you grew up with. And how you see that in a proper historical perspective, it's difficult to do that.
0: And that's why I found the structure of the book and the way you foregrounded these issues to be one of the most interesting pieces of it. So we've sort of come full circle, I suppose, (laughs) in the discussion, um, which leads me only to my final question, which is now that this book is available, people can go read it. Is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like our listeners to be aware of?
1: Um, I'll tell you something, and I don't know if I should end this way, but by the end of the centenary, I had a form of <laughs> commemorative neurosis. Uh, I felt all wrung out, and I've made a decision after 20 years of working on war that I will not work on war anymore. And I hope my book has relevance for conflicts going on in our present where there will be afterlives and aftermaths. It has a lot to say about the future as well as the past. But for me personally, I want to go on and I want to do a history of expert listening after the Second World War where I look at the rise of empathetic listeners, whether they be therapists, oral historians, whatever. I'm interested in the social movements that group around the idea that listening can be a social good. And as an oral historian, I'm interested in the role that oral history itself has played post-war in helping to create listening cultures where people Uh, communicate through empathy.
0: Okay, that sounds pretty interesting. Mm. (laughs) Well, best of luck with that project. And while you're working on it, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, titled Afterlives of War, A Descendants History, published by Manchester University Press. Michael, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us on the podcast.
1: Miranda, it was a total pleasure, and thank you very much. There were terrific questions, so thank you.